James Blake, if you're not familiar with him, he's a singer-songwriter, he's a performer, he's um, a producer, I think he lives in London, actually no, I think he lives in LA now, I think he's in America, sorry, Americans stole him. Um, uh, he still has his accent though, so it's alright. Yeah, he was nominated for five Grammys. I think he won at least one of them, maybe more. He has three Brit Award nominations. He's won the Mercury Prize. He's recorded albums. He's toured. He's done all the things that make someone successful in a very difficult industry to be successful in. He's basically, he's done it all. But growing up for him was a really different experience. I heard an interview with him on a podcast recently where he was talking about um, an experience that led him to hide his love for music. He was like 12 or 10-ish or so. He was like a younger, younger boy in his room playing the piano and just belting it out, singing along to Whitney Houston. Now, that, if you don't know, that's not a very cool thing for a 12-year-old boy to do. But he didn't care. He loved the music, so he was doing it. Uh, he was loving it. He was right up against the window in, in his room. And in the middle of his song, he caught sight of his friends who were about four houses down in their back garden and they were all looking at him, pointing, laughing, and taunting him for jamming out to Whitney Houston. And he said, from that, it was like concrete. It wasn't like, I wonder if that affected me. He was like, no, from that moment on, I made a vow to myself. I will never let anyone hear my music. And so he didn't. Maybe his parents, because they were in, living in his house with him. But he hid it away, even all the way up through uni. If he ever wanted to go to a practice room, he would wait till after hours at school, wait till no one was around, go into a room and lock himself in and play, like just hope, hoping that no one else would hear. He, and he kept playing. It affected his musical life. He also talked about how it affected his personal life. He didn't even get into other like, serious relationships with other women until like, well after uni. Now, mocking something which is good, that is unholy contempt. Mocking something that is good. And when we're on the other side of those taunts, uh, that leads to internal vows, like this will never happen again, or I promise myself I will never do that. I, this is never going to happen. Like you, whenever you've had that experience of growing up, and all of us have had, where you just want to disappear out of that, you say, I don't ever want to feel like that again, so I will never do this again. And that leads to a life where you have to lock yourself inside rooms, kind of never showing your true self. And notice too, even in James Blake's situation, where mockery has more power than kind of the raw talent that he has and, and gift that he has. Just one experience of like four or five of his friends laughing at him led to a lifetime of just different way of living for someone who is incredibly talented. Contempt is a powerful thing. And all of us have been on the receiving side of contempt. You know, people have like done that to us. But all of us, if we're honest, we've also dished it out to others. Because we are all James Blake and we are all his friends inside of us, both at the same time. Now, unholy contempt is an assault against the glory that God intends his children to bear. I bring this book up a lot because I think it's great. Cry of the soul. In fact, there's, been, there's a WhatsApp group I'm part of where they're making tally marks of every time I talk about this book. So add another tick mark there, Mike. Um, unholy contempt is an assault against the glory that God intends his children to bear. It's making fun of something that's good. That's what contempt is. Now, there's going to be lots of other quotes in this sermon. So if you hear like, wow, that's a really good line. I probably didn't write it. It's probably from this book or other books that are people who write things much better than me. So basically, we are meant for glory. Contempt tries to rip that down, tries to tear it down. We have so much dignity in ourselves as human beings. Contempt tries to lower that all down. Unholy contempt mocks the goodness of God, and we've all done it. As we go through this message, we'll make it clear on how we do that kind of constantly. And we'll look also at the depth on how we've been affected by the contempt of others and how we brought that upon other people as well. And contempt is maybe it's a bit of a com- more complex emotion. It's kind of like anger ratcheted up a little bit. 
So if there are questions that you have, or if there are things you're like, I don't understand that at all, or I don't agree with that at all, um, you can go to that website, redeemermcr.com ask. It's completely anonymous, and what, basically I get an email from, from a service, not even from an email address. And we have a little Q&A session after the service, we'll bring those up. Um, so just remember that that's there for you. Uh, Jesus, though, what we're going to learn in this uh, sermon today, how Jesus has taken all the mockery, all the contempt, all the ripping apart of goodness upon himself, and that frees us to put contempt where it's meant to go. Contempt ought to be directed towards evil. That's a good thing. So it's not that we shouldn't ever feel contempt, it's that we should feel contempt against the right things. They often don't feel contempt against the right things. And Jesus heals us of the past hurts where we've been on the wrong side of contempt and redirects our path, allowing us to mock evil the way that God does. So really, at the end of the sermon, we'll learn basically how to mock people, not people, how to mock rightly, how to mock like God. Ever heard a pastor saying, you guys should mock things more often? That's what we'll talk about. But first, let's talk about how powerful contempt is. Uh, so contempt, if you think of contempt as like a, 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 um, an intense, more intense version of anger, so you're angry about something, but contempt is like another level. It provokes other anger, provokes other people to flight or to flee. Contempt kind of makes it even more intense. Like you're either going to really run away or really try and fight. Unholy contempt, as I said, just mocks that which is good. It mocks the goodness of God, wherever that's to be found, whether in people or in other places. And really two kind of important areas that contempt brings is isolation and shaming. So let's focus a little bit on how contempt isolates people. Psalm 31, uh, 11 through 12 says this, Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbor and, the, and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I'm forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. That's isolation comes from contempt. Or Psalm 102, 7 through, 7 through 11 has, has this in there. I lie awake. I become like a bird alone on a roof. You're not going to be with other people when you're like the object of contempt. All day long, my enemies taunt me. That's contempt, taunting. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Contempt isolates because it says you are not worthy of love. That's what it tells us. That's, that's the message we receive. So like James Blake, like, oh, if that's a feeling of not worthy of love, I'm going to hide that thing away, even if it's something good. It keeps others within a circle of mockery, and those who are doing the mocking are immune. We're outside of it. So if you, if you get to point your finger at somebody, you don't get to experience what that feels like for yourself. And with unholy contempt, good desires are made foolish. Without a strong tie to good desires, we end up more vulnerable to others' influence and control. And so it's a common path for people who want to wrongfully gain control for themselves and, and exercise it over other, whether it's political leaders, religious leaders, whatever it is, is to show contempt against that which is good, and then people are vulnerable to basically be under control more. It's a way to keep power. So it isolates. And also shames. Psalm 22, 6 through 8 says, But I am a worm and not a man. Like, I'm not even a human being because I'm experiencing contempt. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And then even mocking the, uh, David's belief. Uh, another verse says, He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord save him. He, he has faith in God. Like, just let God save him. Now, when you are the subject of contempt, you find yourself asking, am I a fool to trust in God? Like, is this Christianity thing, is it kind of, is it even worth it? Is it a sham? 
I mean, have you ever thought that? Anyone who has faith, you have thought that. We have all thought that. Here's other ways we can show contempt. That may not feel like contempt, but they are. The first is gossip. You're like, oh, can you believe they did this? Or you're like, you just want those juicy details on how that horrible thing happened to that person. A horrible thing happening to another human being who is in, made in the image of God, and you delighting in that, is contempt. Or boasting. Because any way that we bring glory to ourselves, because we're all made in the image of God equally, anytime we want to put ourselves above others, we have to knock someone else down. So someone else, ha- we have to show contempt towards other people. Otherwise, how are we going to stand out? And we may not say, look how awesome I am. But we buy the clothes, we buy the car, we buy the house, the job, the connections, we talk about what we talk about, how we talk about it, that all gives us away. All our self-glory requires us to make others small. And there's also blame shifting. Like when we fail at something, it can either go one or two ways. Sometimes we might grovel in self-contempt, which is not really being sorry for the other person. It's you being sorry that you feel bad that you did something bad. That's incredibly selfish when you think about it. Like, oh, I feel so bad, so I'm going to have to say sorry. What about how you made that other person feel? Like, there's no empathy in that. So there's groveling and self-contempt. But there's also the, well, I, I did this because you did that. And what I did wasn't as bad as you. Or if you didn't do that, then I wouldn't have done that. So blame shifting is a level of contempt. We have to, like, lower other people's dignity in order for us to feel better about ourselves. Then also, there's contempt towards God. So we've talked about maybe contempt on the horizontal level. But there's also a vertical dimension to our contempt. Our lack of belief in God exposes our contempt of Him. We may not say, oh, I walk around, you know, in contempt of God all the time. But we do. Here's what, um, we'll we'll talk about a verse in Numbers in a second here, but here's a bit of the background of this verse in Numbers. Quick background. In the book of Numbers, the Israelites, who were formerly slaves, now they're freed and they're kind of wandering in the wilderness, God has shown them the promised land where he's given them a home, given them a place where they're going to go. He's said this for 40 years. I'm, I'm giving you a place, just follow me. And they're not really listening, so they basically go around in circles in the wilderness for 40 years. But the time comes where finally the Israelites are going to enter that promised land. And uh, Joshua and Caleb led a group of people to kind of get a lay of the land, like what's the deal there? Are there people there? What's the agriculture like? All that kind of stuff. And they see what went on there, and they come back and they report to the rest of the Israelites. Uh, now, the Israelites have been kind of afraid to go where God had told them for 40 years. And that didn't change when Joshua and Caleb said, well, yeah, there might be things to be scary there, but God's on our side. Like, what are you afraid of? If, I mean, if you feel like mission is moving slowly in Redeemer, or mission is moving slowly in your life, or your missional community, or if you're kind of impatient about how God works, this is 40 years of God's people walking in circles. Like, we're not there yet. Maybe we will be. Maybe we'll be 80 years. I don't know. But it's all about, are we going to follow God? The leaders of Israel, Moses and Aaron, along with Joshua and Caleb, were telling everybody, don't be afraid. Everyone's scared, so tell them, don't be afraid. God is on our side. So were the people excited? Did they listen? We're like, okay, yes, we believe you. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, we're not afraid. Or we are afraid, but in our fear, we're still going to proceed because we know God's on our side. No, they wanted to stone them. They wanted to kill them. Like, I will, we would rather kill somebody than go to a place that is going to cause us to fear. And Numbers 14.11 says this, Because Moses comes back to the Lord. He's like, oh, these people, which is basically what Moses says all the time. Numbers 14.11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? So treat me with contempt 
is synonymous with refusing to believe in me? How long will they treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? If any of you have ever struggled with belief in God, especially when it comes to being called to places where we're uncomfortable or fearful, like there's a level where we're going to show contempt with God by not following him. That's everybody in this room. We've all shown God contempt because none of us have all the time 100% followed him where he wants us to go. And to make it easier, actually, on the Israelites, God gave them signs, he gave them experiences of his love, many of them, of why they should trust him. And now we, we have all those signs, because Numbers is just like a book maybe about that big, we have all those signs in this whole book, and let alone the experiences in our lives, and yet we're just like them. We're under kind of probably more guilt than the Israelites were. And we may not say we feel contempt towards God, but this is what contempt towards God is. So we do, we have that. Let's just be honest, if we're all kind of like that. Unlike us, for whom contempt changes us and affects us, especially unholy contempt, God in his holy strength is never thwarted by contempt. It's never like his plans go awry because someone hurls an insult at him or something like that. What God does is God mocks those who mock him, which is kind of a scary thing. I don't want to be mocked by God. What's the deal with that? Well, let's talk about this. God's contempt for evil. So if we remember that uh, contempt is a bit like anger, and as with our jacked up expressions of anger, we can get wrong you know, 99% of the time. Maybe sometimes we're actually righteously angry. What we should do is learn to mock with God's perspective. At the end of the, the sermon, we're going to learn that means boasting of weakness. That's going to mean acts of mercy. That's going to mean um, uh, taunting death, taunting suffering. But that can only come from trust in the Lord. So in order for that to happen, we must be broken up ourselves by God's holy contempt. We must be broken up first before we can even think of kind of living out in this way. Once we're rightly broken up, we can be put together in the way that God wants us to be put together. So let's look at how God expresses his holy contempt. Not unholy contempt, but holy contempt. So he laughs, he ridicules, and humiliates. This is not normally like a very uh, kind of uplifting message, right? God is laughing at you, or he wants to humiliate you. But what we see in scripture is God does express contempt. Why does he do that? What does that look like? Well, this has a lot to do with Psalm 2 that we read to begin with. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. What are they banding up and rising up against? Against the Lord and his anointed and his people, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. This is not some kind of um, like benign ruler of just trying to do good things for good people. This is a, an image of someone who's trying to make themselves better in order to bring God down. Not just other people, but God himself. And the laughter that God has as he laughs at them, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That's not a fun laughter. That's not a joyful laughter. That's like a sarcastic, mocking kind of laughter. Those who try and set themselves up above God will be the subject of his scorn eventually. Psalm 37, 13 says, But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming, because justice will win in the end. So God laughs. He also ridicules. Um, In Jeremiah, God is speaking to uh, a people in a a country called Moab. And uh, Moab was kind of at that time, was known for its lack of justice. It kept poor people poor. It uh, didn't follow God in the way that um, God asked them to, and they worshipped other gods, which meant like sacrificing their children and all sorts of horrible stuff. Basically, a really kind of unjust nation. 
Um, but the way that God talks about Moab, in fact, I can't even say all the things in Jeremiah because they're too disturbing for the all kind of ages that would be here or even been listening to this. But just a couple of the verses, uh, verses 25 and 26. Now, Moab's horn is cut off. Her arm is broken, declares the Lord. And this is God talking, which is scary. Make her drunk, for she has defied the Lord. Let Moab wallow in her vomit. Let her be an object of ridicule. God wants Moab to be seen for what Moab really is, which is an, an unjust kind of system worthy of ridicule, worthy of being seen as horrible, not, not as seen as God's glory. God also uh, humiliates, because humiliation crushes pride. Towards those who continue in their own injustice, in, in Nahum 3.6, God says, I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. God shames the arrogant in those same places where they shamelessly flaunt their insolence. We need to be broken up by that. We serve a God who's holy, and we need to be broken up by that. Regina Spector, um, if you don't know her, this is like Piano Sunday. Uh, she's a singer-songwriter, an amazing artist, actually. She wrote a book, uh, wrote a song called Laughing With. She wouldn't say that she's a Christian. Um, but she really gets to this idea of contempt. The first two verses is no one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when the doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid's not back from that party yet. But then the chorus talks about how we do show God contempt. But God could be funny at a cocktail party while listening to a good God-themed joke or when the crazies say he hates us or when they get so red in the head you think they're about to choke. God could be funny when he told you he'd give you money if you just pray the right way, and when presented like a genie who does magic like Houdini, or grants wishes like Jiminy Cricket and Santa Claus, God could be so hilarious. When things are going well, God is hilarious. When things aren't going well, we pray prayers we haven't prayed before. We, all of us, laugh at God when we're comfortable, and when we feel secure, and when we're in trouble, though, that all changes, and rightfully so. Now before you think God's contempt towards evil is unfairly cruel. Think for a moment of your own view of what might be fair, what might be just. You, a finite being, uh, an imperfect being, when you see that video of a police officer like using his brute force against someone, overpowering them in an unjust way, would it be fair to just let that police officer off and just, oh, that's fine, he maybe made a mistake? No, when we see those videos, we get angry. And we have contempt for the evil that we see, and that's a good thing. Or whenever we hear those horrible, wicked stories of what anyone in power does to those who aren't. I mean, is the best thing to happen for no punishment to be dished out? Like, that, that, that doesn't seem right. Now, maybe kind of, let's bring this in about, when I talked, bring this in a bit, when I talked about gossip and boasting and, and blame shifting, when someone holds you in contempt, you want that wrong to be made right. But when we're taunting others, we don't really want to be made right because we're on the receiving end of that discipline. It would be unfair and not just to want others to be punished and not ourselves. It's just kind of how justice works. And remember, how God talks about what it means to show him contempt is not trusting in him, which is more fundamental than all these other ways. Not trusting in God, and God is how we show him contempt. I mean, has anyone here ever not trusted in God? Of course, yes. All of us are in that same boat. So that means really all of us must, must shudder like, before his mockery. 
We must be horrified by our ongoing arrogance and all of us, whether you follow Jesus or not, we must be honest with the reality that we believe we are self-sufficient. Like God's nice, but you know, he's maybe an option. That we don't need anyone else and that we kind of really, if we're put to it, we kind of really don't care about God's glory. If we see that about ourselves and are horrified rightly, which we should be, that leaves space and that horror, that leaves space to hear something even more unbelievable and even more mind-blowing. All the contempt, all that contempt, that is due us, that should be directed at us for what we've said or, or done or haven't said or haven't done or all those things. The Father poured his contempt that we deserved upon his own Son. He didn't pour it out on, on, on other people and, and then that was it. Say what you will about God's justice. He's putting himself in the place. He's taking that suffering upon himself. That horror of God's contempt opens the door to wonder, and wonder is an invitation to worship. It was said earlier that God in his holy strength is never thwarted by contempt. It's not like if we make fun of God, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm never going to do that again. What God does is he mocks those who mocks him. And in God's mercy, he takes our contempt by cursing his own son. He mocks his own son. Those horrible words that we just read, we only read like three, I don't know, maybe like six verses total about God's contempt. That, all of that, and there's a lot more, all of that was placed on his son. So we talked about the power of contempt, God's contempt for evil. Now let's talk about God's contempt for God. God's contempt for God. This is where the cross, where Jesus, God himself, willingly went to die. On the cross, God allowed his created being to mock him. So we talked about Psalm 22, how David is writing this psalm about how people are mocking him. These are the words that Jesus takes for himself on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, the very first verse. And then later on in Psalm uh, 22, verses 7 and 8, those words we just read, this is true of Jesus first before it's true of us. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Isn't that exactly what went on at the cross? Why doesn't he help himself? Why doesn't he call down angels? If, he, if he's God's son, why isn't God helping him now? This is Jesus at his most vulnerable and most generous. Religious leaders, political leaders, common people, thieves, people who thought they were good, people who thought they weren't good, they all mocked the Son of God. And Jesus quietly bore the contempt of his own creation. And what did people get out of mocking him? Maybe they felt a little better about themselves, maybe it helped kind of assuage some of the awkwardness of, ooh, I don't know, maybe my, is this the right thing to do? But no matter how hard we mock, we will never get what we want. Mocking won't get us what we want. And more than just being mocked by creation, Jesus was mocked by God. He was under the Father's contempt, the subject of God's contempt. He became a curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse, we had that curse, by becoming a curse for us. See, God chose to violate his son in our place. Jesus was the one who was pelted with filth. Jesus was the one who was made to look like he was drunk. Jesus was the one who was shamed in front of everybody. Jesus was treated with contempt. Jesus was that spectacle. And all of this, that what Jesus is doing, is, uh, and God is doing, is more than a mere model. It's not like, I want to show, God wasn't like, I want to show people how much I love them, and so I'm going to put on this little piece of theater. What happened was in the actual work of the cross, things actually happened. The cross itself actually activated something. It made something happen that didn't happen before. And the willingness of Jesus to bear God's and creation's contempt opens our hearts 
and draws us to see God's contempt has already been poured out on the perfect, unblemished Son of God. It's kind of like, think of a sponge like soaking up all that water. This is what Jesus' death on the cross did for us. I mean, if you ever, I mean, um, this past week, there was some chocolate that got spilled on one of our sofa cushions and I grabbed a thing of like a, uh, a towel, that's the word, a towel of water. I'm supposed to learn how to know how to say words, right? Um, the towel full of water and, it, and just soaked it all up. And all of the stain that was on the couch now was on that towel. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He's taken the stain, taken that curse upon himself. All soaked up completely. The punishment that we deserved. So really, our hope isn't in fairness. Our hope is in, in unfairness. The unfairness of the gospel. We don't deserve that. We never did anything to deserve it. We never will. And yet God done it, has done it for us. For those who are in Jesus, we never, ever, ever look into God's eyes, into Jesus' eyes, think of God's presence, and feel his contempt. We never feel his disappointment. We never feel his wrath against us because it's already been poured out. Now, he might discipline us. He might say, you're doing the wrong thing. Go over here. And if we don't listen over time, sometimes it is difficult to be changed from our own path to God's path. But he will never view us with disappointment. He will never view us as like, if only you would do a little bit more. That's not what God thinks. He loves being a part of your life. He has already done everything. We get to enjoy it and live out of the overflow of that love. When God embraces us, which he does for everyone who believes in him, regardless of what you've done that day or that week, it's an embrace of joy, not an embrace of contempt. 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself, as Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And if we have been healed, if we trust in Jesus, the dying to sins part means living, not living anymore in the way of unholy contempt. Not doing the boasting, not doing you know, the gossiping, not doing all the other kind of stuff, not the lack of trust in God. And the living for righteousness part means we get to live in holy contempt. We get to mock like God. We see the opposite of unholy contempt isn't peacefulness, it's holy contempt, having the right kind of contempt for the right kinds of things. So let's learn a little bit how to mock like God as we finish up here. First of all, this doesn't mean that we put ourselves in God's place because we are not God. We are way below Him. We are subjects. We are created. But living in these kind of three ways we're going to talk about allows us to get us off that path of unholy contempt and live more the life of the Spirit of one of holy contempt. One thing we get to do is show mercy. Acts of mercy. Those who deserve contempt but have had that horror swallowed up by Jesus live merciful lives. Romans 2.4, uh, Paul, Apostle Paul writes this, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The kindness that God has given us it, it leads us to a life aligned with Jesus. That's what repentance is. And the more we realize how much Jesus has rescued us from our own horrors, of our own punishment, the more room that we have for mercy. Because you can't show contempt to someone and be merciful to them at the same time. It's impossible. It doesn't work. His mercy is greater than my contempt. He loves me and he smiles with delight toward me. So one way we can mock like God is in the face of injustice, we show acts of mercy. Another way is to boast in weakness. Those who deserve contempt but have had that horror swallowed up by Jesus, soaked up by Jesus, are free to boast in weakness. 
2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, says, uh, again, the Apostle Paul writing, but he said to me, God talking to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And that means uh, what Paul follows on saying, therefore, you may have heard that verse before, but even like the following verse of Paul kind of realizing what that means for himself, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. To delight in our weakness? What in the world is that? That sounds crazy. And yet, that's exactly what it means to uh, mock like God. Because we are called to boast. We should boast more in our weaknesses. That's what we're meant to do. And if you've ever been around a group of people who do that well, it's so life-giving. It's so, people can be honest about boasting in their weaknesses because what, we, that, what that means is there's way more space to talk about Jesus and what he's done in our lives. I don't know if you guys have ever been to uh, an AA meeting. Uh, I went through a counseling course, and one of the things we had to do was attend some AA meetings. They were, I was blown away by it. I was like, this is kind of how the church should interact with each other. People insanely honest with where they are, insanely honest with how far they need to come, or, or also insanely honest with celebrating victories and wins, and everybody is there all together. It's, it's amazing, and I wish we as a church could be more like that. Uh, the more we add, allow the Spirit to work in us, the more that will true. And if you aren't able to boast in weakness yet, I think that might prove that your trust is probably more in yourself than it is in the Lord. Because if our trust isn't in the Lord, is in the Lord, then we should be boasting in our weaknesses, because we can talk more about God and what He's done. Right, and lastly, uh, so acts of mercy, boasting in weakness, the last one is taunt, death, and suffering. I mean, I'm a sarcastic guy. I like making fun of stuff anyway. So anytime there's, you know, a thing that we are allowed to taunt something, I'm like, yeah, tell me where and when. I'll be there. Um, Those who deserve contempt, but have had that horror swallowed up by Jesus, taunt death and taunt suffering. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the Christian, we can say that and we can mean it. And that's not theoretical, especially now. It's real. Proverbs 31.25, in talking about the ideal woman, like, a, the, like this, a strong, godly woman, what does she do? She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. Days to come, what is that? That's uncertainty. She can laugh in the face of uncertainty. All of us have had uncertainty. How many of us have been able to laugh at it? Like, ugh, scoff at uncertainty. I don't have to worry about it. God is at work. That's a way we get to mock like God. Let, uh, the other aspect is to... Let uncertainty rule your life and to try and eliminate all uncertainty from your life altogether. But here's the thing. We don't want to go too far and say that loss isn't a thing. Loss is still a thrill thing and lament and sorrow will still be there. There will still be tears. But loss is not the end because the sting of death has been removed. When pondering the unknown future, we can laugh in its face. I really want to do that. I'm thinking of like, how do, we, how do you plan for a church a quarter from now? You can't. It's like, a month from now, maybe you can, depending on what Boris decides to do or not do. It's like, well, I don't know what we're doing. But because we follow Jesus, we don't live by plans, we live by the Spirit. We get to laugh in the face of that. Whatever comes, we know God's going to move his kingdom forward. And when difficult times come, we can, we should weep. We also look towards a new day, because this world isn't all that there is right in front of our face. There's something more. And those who follow Jesus, we value trust in Jesus over what we see with our eyes. We put trust in his word over what we hear on the street. Because we're people of the risen king, and this king isn't sitting by just kind of like, wow, 
I wonder what I'm going to do now. He's active. He's at work. And we've seen a lot of that work actually in our church even. And so are we as we join him in acts of mercy, in boasting in our weaknesses, and as we taunt death and suffering. But all of this that we're talking about was won through Jesus' death. And when we eat and drink together, we bring that reality to bear on our lives. It's a tangible remembering of what we get to do. We remember. Now, if you don't follow Jesus yet, uh, you can't bring this reality to bear in your life. And if you're watching at home especially, now's the time to grab something to, uh, to be able to join us together. Um, if you don't follow Jesus, what the Bible says, not me, but the Bible says is you are under God's contempt because you have not yet been able to experience the grace that Jesus has given you. But you don't have to be that way because everyone is invited to the king's table. He's generous. So if you don't follow Jesus, we don't want you to do this thing because basically you'd be doing something that would be a lie with your body. You don't really believe in your heart. Um, but if you'd like to follow him, uh, definitely join in with us. It's, welcome. it's open to anybody. And you, if you're here with us, you have uh, the bread and the cup underneath your seat. Now we, as God's people, can be merciful when it is humanly impossible, only when we receive mercy from God. We can boast in weakness when we're honest with our weakness before an all-powerful God. We can taunt death and taunt suffering because Jesus' death and resurrection was the biggest joke to be played on a broken world. So we take this bread and we'll eat it, remembering Christ's body, the subject of God's contempt. And we take the cup and we drink it, remembering it as Jesus' new life that flows within us through his Holy Spirit. 